And I hope you're ambidextrous because if you'll keep your uh, one finger at least in chapter 5, um, and you could turn to Luke 10. If you haven't got a Bible with you, don't worry, I'm going to read it for you. But uh, Luke 10 and verse 25. Um, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Uh, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. I do pray that as we consider that passage in Matthew this afternoon, Heavenly Father, that God, the Holy Spirit, will speak your truth deep into our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto a mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. The whole of Matthew is about the king and his kingdom. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5 and verse 1, King Jesus sees the crowd um, and he goes up on a mountainside. I think Ian showed us a picture uh, from when he was there a few weeks ago. And often when mountains are mentioned in the Bible, something important is happening. Perhaps you remember in the Old Testament, God gave the law to Moses when he was on a mountain. Later on in Matthew, we'll come to what's called the Transfiguration. Jesus was on a mountain with three of his disciples and something of his glory was revealed to them. His face uh, shone. Uh, and then right at the end of Matthew, the great commission, uh, the disciples are on a mountain and Jesus says to them, go and tell the world all about me. So important things happen on mountains in the Bible. And then we read that Jesus sits down. It's a picture of enthronement. The king sitting down to rule. 
and his disciples come to him and he begins to teach them. Can you imagine? The disciples come to him and the voice of Jesus, the voice that brought all creation into being, uh, begins to teach them. Uh, and his teaching actually turns the disciples' world upside down. You see, they've been called to uh, follow this king who preaches that his kingdom is at hand. Uh, they're expecting to be part of a great army that's going to kick out the Romans uh, and make the nation of Israel great again. And because they're mates of the king, well, what's going to happen to them? They're expecting to be great themselves, aren't they? Crowds parting before them, all the best seats when they go to the cinema. They're going to be awesome. And how does the king begin his manifesto? He begins it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you uh, because of me. Well, they don't seem to be uh, much like the characteristics of a conquering army, do they? Jesus is telling them, live like Beatitudes people. Um, Live like this. And they must have thought, what? That can't be right. So he gives them the Beatitudes and then he tells them about being salt and light, how we will fulfill the law, not abolish it. And then he deepens their understanding of God's law in six areas. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, uh, revenge uh, and enemies. Um, And the main idea of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember Ian a couple of weeks ago? He gave us this grand tour, virtual tour of Maltby Pit. Do you remember there was was a, a, a two shafts and a cage at the top and a cage at the bottom? Uh, and you need to keep that in mind, really, because the main idea of the Sermon of the Mount is live like Beatitudes, people. Don't live like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Gentiles. In verses 17 to 19, Jesus tells his disciples that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he makes a very emphatic introduction to his next teaching. For I tell you, He says, I tell you, Jesus is going to make a very important contrast between the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and the righteousness of uh, that delights God. He says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There's a a man called David Platt. He wrote a very little helpful book about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says that as subjects of the king and citizens of the kingdom, Christians must manifest a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And this righteousness only comes about as we are changed by God's grace and power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this verse and this idea is key to understanding this passage today. You see, righteousness is a heart thing. Um, Jesus, sorry, there we are. 
Jesus isn't asking us to pile up righteous deed on righteous deed by our own human effort. He wants us to have more righteous hearts by God's grace and power and our righteous hearts, what's inside, will be reflected through our righteous deeds, what we do outside. So who were these uh, scribes and Pharisees here? Uh, the scribes, they were professionals, you know. They were acknowledged as the expert teachers of the Old Testament. Uh, and the Pharisees, well, they were kind of Jewish religious people, a small group of them. They tried very hard uh, to convince everyone, to make everyone believe that they were putting into practice the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees in their everyday lives. And these two groups were the uh, religious elites of uh, Israel. And, and the disciples must have been shocked by Jesus' demand. Who can be more righteous than the religious elite of the country you live in. Um, and if we have to exceed the uh, righteousness of these religious elite, we'd better know what kind of righteousness the Pharisees and scribes had. And Jesus tells us actually in chapter 23 of Matthew, when he's pretty blunt, verse 25 of chapter 23 says this, Woe to you, that's bad news isn't it, Woe to you, teachers of the law and uh, Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You see the contrast between what's on the inside and what's on the outside? The Pharisees seemed to be clean on the outside, but their hearts were full of greed and self-indulgence. And we have the same picture in the next verse, verse 26. Blind Pharisees, he says, First clean the inside of the cup and dish, then the outside will also be clean. And again we've got the contrast between the inside and the outside, but notice how bad their condition is. They're blind. They don't see it. They aren't aware what their problem is. And to make triply sure that they know, the scribes and Pharisees know what he's thinking, he tells them again in verse 27, Woe to you! Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is all on the outside. It's external righteousness. And Jesus, it says, it's not good enough to be righteous on the outside uh, if you're not righteous on the inside as well. Jesus isn't asking for more righteous deeds by human effort. He's not asking for more of the same thing, more of the righteousness of like that of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's not asking, for example, the scribes and the Pharisees do ten good things a day, therefore you've got to do fifteen. It's not a quantity thing. It's a quality thing. It's a righteousness that's of a different kind altogether. Uh, Jesus is asking for more righteous hearts through God's grace and power, not an outward righteousness that just looks good to the people around us, but a heart righteousness that shows the people around us how gracious and powerful God is. Uh, and just before we move on to think about an eye for an eye... Um, and love your neighbour 
When he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, righteousness, it's a salvation thing. You know, lots of people, they just sort of assume that everyone goes to heaven when they die. But here, Jesus says, some people don't. And I wonder if that comes as a surprise or a a shock to you. You've always thought, well, everybody does go to heaven when they die, don't you? And then Jesus is telling you, no, they don't. Something to think about that, isn't it? And if you need some help to think that through, then please talk to somebody when we get to the end of our service. Uh, So having laid down the underlying principle in verse 20, Jesus applies that basic truth to some specific commandments. He contrasts the uh, false and true application of of, uh, God's law. Six times uh, Jesus uh, places his own authoritative pronouncement over against the teaching of these scribes and Pharisees. Six times he says, you've heard it said, but I say, He shows how the Old Testament law, laws to do with uh, murder, adultery, divorce, taking oaths, retaliation and love towards neighbours, how these laws have been interpreted and taught and lived out by the religious leaders of Israel. And he goes on to make clear that God's original intention has something different to say. And what that means for us in everyday life. Ian, last week, I think, took us... Uh, from murder through oaths. And this week we're going to look at revenge and enemies. Uh, So uh, sounds like one of those TV programs that leave you in in, uh, suspense till the following week's episode, doesn't it? Um, And we're going to take uh, the teaching on revenge and enemies uh, together. And we're going to ask a question. um, What does the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribe and Pharisees look like in our relationships with other people, particularly those relationships where there's a bit of uh, tension, perhaps, uh, between them. And I'm going to take them together because, actually, the answer is the same in both cases. And it's in verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's a Righteousness is a love thing. In uh, verse 38, we read, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus. It says, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And then in verse 20, uh, Levi 20, uh, Leviticus, sorry, 24, that adds fracture for fracture. And in Deuteronomy, life for life. So there's not much left, is there, uh, outside of that. Um, But eye for eye is a law court thing. It's an instruction given to Israel's rulers and judges, the people responsible for keeping law and order in the nation, to make sure, although it sounds a bit harsh to us, this is to make sure that the punishment fitted the crime, but didn't go beyond that. And the Old Testament makes it clear that the people had no right to take personal revenge when they were wrong. In fact, the Old Testament prohibits 
personal vengeance. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord, was the instruction given in Leviticus. But by the time of Jesus, the scribes and Pharisees had taken the principle from the arena of the law courts, where it did belong, and put it in the arena of everyday relationships, where it didn't belong. Uh, And people were taking the law into their own hands. They were using God's word to justify personal revenge rather than seeking justice through the law. Uh, So Jesus says in verse 39, But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Don't resist an evil person. Now Jesus doesn't deny that this person is evil or that their behaviour is evil. But he says, don't resist them. So what does Jesus mean when he says, don't resist an evil person? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek, and so on and so on. These are just four examples to help us see the underlying principle. And his principle is clear by what follows in verses 43 to 48, particularly verse 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is condemning a spirit of lovelessness, of hatred, of longing for revenge that was part of everyday life then and is part of everyday life now. He's saying, don't live like these people. Live like Beatitudes people. Have the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Have a spirit of love. Love even for enemies and once we see that this is clear we see that turn the other cheek means to show the evil person who insults us that's what uh, being slapped on the right cheek was it was uh, one of the worst insults apparently that you could give Uh, when that evil person insults us let's show by our attitudes our words, our actions that we're filled with a spirit of love and not a spirit of revenge. Jesus is saying that the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees has a spirit of love, even love for the evil person who insults you. And it's the same if the evil person threatens us with court action to take our shirts as payment for an alleged debt. They're literally want the shirt off your back rather than defend this court action with a heart full of resentment Jesus says it's better to hand over your coat as well now we don't have a clue I go to my wardrobe and I open it up and delicious say well, how many pairs of trousers have you got there how many shirts How many? Um, in these days actually they probably got one shirt and one coat and that was it so uh, the shirt was the tunic worn next to the body um, the coat well that was thought to be indispensable 
poor people, as I said, would only probably have one shirt and one coat. And if it was pawned, if you had to go and borrow money from someone with your coat, they've got to give it back when it came to evening time because that would be the only cover that that poor person had to keep them warm at night. So Jesus is saying, don't live like these people. Live like Beatitudes people. Have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Have a spirit of love, even for the evil person who tries to deprive of deprive us of our possessions and the next example is in verse 41 if ever if anyone forces you to go one mile go with them two miles you know Israel at this time was occupied by the Romans the Roman soldiers had a legal right to take possession of uh, animals or belongings of their conquered people or to require them to carry out work there's an example of this in Mark 15, you'll know it well. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country and they forced him to carry Jesus' cross. A soldier could call for one of the local people to carry his pack for the Roman equivalent of one mile. Jesus says, when an evil person imposes on us, don't be bitter or angry or resentful. Willingly bear the wrong. Willingly suffer that injustice. Do even more than they demand. Go the extra mile and do it joyfully. Jesus is saying, don't live like these people. Live like Beatitudes people. Have the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Have a spirit of love, even for the evil person who compels us to serve them. And next, Jesus tells us, give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. When someone is in need, real need, not the fraudster or the professional beggar or the swindler. But when someone is in genuine need. Even if it's the evil person who's done all these things to you. When they ask for help. We mustn't turn our ear in aid off. We mustn't pretend we've not listened to them. We must give. Not grudgingly but generously. We must lend. Not looking at what we might gain. But give willingly. Jesus is saying, don't live like those people. Live like Beatitudes people. Have the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Have a spirit of love even for the evil person who asks us to share some of our wealth. And that brings us to verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. You know, this was the way the average Israelite saw his relationships. That's how they've been taught. Love your neighbour, hate your enemy. Uh, that was the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. But the scribes and the Pharisees had left out something important and added something that wasn't there. You see, God had said, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. They left out as yourself. 
They left it as love your neighbour. But actually, if you leave out as yourself, it limits what God intended. For we can just love someone, but actually loving someone with the love by which we love ourselves is a much greater love, isn't it? And then they added something. And hate your enemy. That's not in the Bible at all. And they raised the question of, it's a question that should never have been asked actually, who is my neighbour? The scribes and Pharisees, they said, it was only the Jewish people. So they built this wall of hate between themselves and the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. That Israel itself was divided between the uh, so-called good Israelites, the scribes and the Pharisees, and the bad Israelites, like tax collectors. In John 7, the Pharisees, these uh, uh, religious elite, describe the people like that. This, that this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. They didn't half look down their noses at ordinary people. Hatred thrived in the Israel of Jesus' time, and it had plenty to feed on. And in the midst of all this hatred, along comes Jesus, and his teaching it was as, as radical then as it is now. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice that again, he accepts that his followers will have enemies. He accepts that his followers will face persecution. But Jesus was the first person to teach people to see their neighbour in every human being and to meet every human being in love. He's saying, don't live like these people. Live like Beatitudes people. Have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Have a spirit of love even for the person who is our enemy. That's why I read uh, the passage about the good Samaritan. The Samaritan was the sworn enemy of the Jews. But when that Jewish man was attacked and left for dead, his own people went by on the other side. But it was the uh, Samaritan, the enemy, who looked after him and uh, cared for him and even offered to pay the bill. And although his teaching, Jesus' teaching, was new, it built on Old Testament law. In Exodus it says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. So Jesus takes this step from helping your enemy to actually loving them. And love here isn't some warm, fuzzy feeling inside like me and my wife have for one another. It's a posture of the heart. A posture of the heart that says, I'm going to promote the best interests of and work towards the highest good of that person, regardless of who they are, regardless of what they've done to me. And part of loving our enemies, surely, is to pray for them, to pray for the highest good. And what's the highest good? 
we pray that they'll come into a saving relationship with Jesus. We want our enemies, don't we, to be reconciled to God. So we must live and interact and pray for them in such a way that we point them to Jesus. We demonstrate uh, the love of God uh, to them. And the result of uh, this uh, loving and praying for them is in verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus doesn't mean that by loving our enemies and praying for them, we become children of our Father. He means that we show we are children of our Father by loving our enemies. What's on the inside flows out to the outside. You see, by grace, Christians are the Father's children already. And loving our enemies demonstrates that because children imitate their father. My children, old though they are now, are mortified when they come out with me and we meet someone in the street and they say to them, Eee, you look just like your dad. I mean, what an insult, honestly. What do people think? But actually, <laughs> I think the... Uh, I think the Jones family are having similar issues. But when we love our enemies, may it be that people will say, hey, you look just like your dad, as we reflect the heart of our Father God to them. And then Jesus says, the love of the Father is like this. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you've got a garden, you know, this is a great time of year. The flowers and the fruit and the vegetables and the weeds are thriving. Um, I saw the blossom on Nick and Claire's fruit tree a couple of weeks ago. It was awesomely beautiful. But let me tell you, your atheist neighbour, the evil person down the street, the enemy across the road... Their fruit and vegetables and flowers are thriving as well. The blossom on their fruit tree is just as awesome as it is on yours. Because God provides the sunshine and the rain for them as well. It's called common grace. It's shown in God's gifts of creation. Not least in the blessings of uh, sun and rain. Without some rain sometimes, couldn't we? But without the sun and rain... We wouldn't eat, and life on our planet would die. So we're to love as God loves, even those, perhaps, who don't know God. Uh, we're not to love like men love. And what does it mean, what does it look like, if we don't love our enemies? Jesus says in verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors and sinners doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't pagans do that? Jesus says that if as Christians we don't include enemies in our love, then we put ourselves on the same level as the people we despise. In this case, the tax collectors and the pagan Gentiles. I don't know whether you know, but Matthew, who wrote this gospel, had been a tax collector. He was no stranger to the hatred of the scribes and Pharisees. Tax collectors we were looked on as extortionists and traitors working for the Roman oppressors. 
This is what happened when Matthew met Jesus. Later, as Jesus was dining at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, that's the disciples. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing with that mob? Tax collectors were synonymous with sinners. They were the despised of the despised people. And then there were the pagan Gentiles. Old Testament teaching was this, and you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves, said God, were foreigners in Egypt before I rescued you. But in Israel's history, when they were conquered and exiled, they were treated indescribably badly by their captors. And the attitude of the Jews towards foreigners changed. Foreigners had led them into captivity. Foreigners were idolaters. They didn't worship the one true living God. Uh, Foreigners, right now, they were their oppressors, these Romans. So foreigners were hated. They were regarded as unclean. They were called dogs. And for a Jew to eat with a Gentile was unthinkable. And of course, the Gentile attitude was pretty mutual, I'm sure. So Gentiles and Jews formed separate groups. So did Samaritans. They were a kind of half-Jewish people who had lived in the north of Israel. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. They even refused to walk through the land. A Samaritan woman who was at a well and Jesus came along and said, could I have a drink of water, please? She was shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would come and even speak to her. So we've got division all around hatred everywhere that's why Jesus tells us that if you love those who love you what reward will you get aren't even tax collectors doing that and if you greet only your own people what are you doing more than others don't even pagans do that tax collectors love tax collectors Gentiles greet Gentiles and if we're exclusive in our love we're doing nothing more than them Yet Jesus commands us to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And uh, Jesus summarizes all of this up in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus, Jesus doesn't mean that we can somehow become sinless. He does mean that we should be complete and mature. He's telling us, don't be satisfied with halfway obedience to my command to love. Don't imitate the scribes and the Pharisees. Have a righteousness that exceeds theirs. Love your enemies. Tough teaching this, isn't it? I've found it pretty hard. Don't live like these people. Live like Beatitudes people. But the last thing I want this afternoon is that you go away thinking that I've got an impossible crushing shopping list of things I have to do to be accepted by God. So let me take you to the gospel, to the cross and the resurrection. You see, living the beatitude, living like beatitudes people, it's a gospel thing. Remember that Jesus' kingdom is a now and a not yet kingdom. Jesus' kingdom has come. It came 2,000 years ago when he walked upon the earth. 
So it's here, now. But his kingdom's also a not yet kingdom. His kingdom won't be consummated, it won't be fully here, until he returns again in all his glory. So should we turn the other cheek? Absolutely we should. Should we love our enemies? That's what he commands us to do. Because his kingdom is here. Will we always succeed? No. Because his kingdom is not yet. And when we fail, remember it's a gospel thing. Matthew begins his good news by pointing us to the sins of God's people. She, that's Mary, will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Matthew's good news is about Jesus winning our salvation from sin. Not about us trying to earn our salvation. And Matthew ends his good news by pointing us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how and that's when he won our salvation. And it's a new heart and a new spirit thing. You see, Christians have (coughs) repented of their sin. They've turned to Jesus and Jesus has given us a new heart and a new power so we can live like Beatitudes people. God our Heavenly Father in the Old Testament said this, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And God has done what he promised. And because of this, you will not go away thinking, I must turn the other cheek to be accepted by God. I must love my enemies to be accepted by God. Because actually, we're not accepted by God because of anything we do. Jesus has done it all. We're accepted by God completely and totally. Because the perfect King Jesus died in our place and rose from the dead in victory. And if that's news to you, if that kind of puzzles you, then please talk to someone about it in a minute, just before we go. Should we turn the other cheek? Yeah, of course we should. Should we love our enemies? Of course we should. But we do these things, not because we're trying to earn God's acceptance and favour, but because we have God's acceptance and favour and we love him and we want to please him in everything we do and we can be confident that we can live like Beatitudes people we can turn the other cheek we can love our enemies because of the power of Jesus working in us and when we fail we have forgiveness in him